Hello and welcome to the Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate Black culture through its cinema by reviewing and discussing Black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. Um, hey everyone, my name is Lauren, and I'm joined by my friend, starting with James. Hey, I'm James. Ryan. Hey everybody. And Andre. Hello! Today's movie selection is um, The Incredible Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon, released in 1985, starring One Word Wonders, Timok, and Vanity, plus the amazing Julius J. Carey III, uh, which is uh, actually the first historical throwback film in this podcast series so far, and also a beloved kung fu exploitation cult classic. Um, no offense to the Karate Kid, but this movie is really where it's at. So... I'm going to start by asking all of you, because I love this movie. This is one of my favorite movies from my childhood because I had amazing taste as a child. But I want to know from all of you, especially Andre, who had not seen this movie before, what what did you think? So we're going to start with me or? With that kind of call out. You got I guess out. you got to start with me. You got to know. Uh, at first, when I was watching this, I was just like, yeah, it looks like uh, Lauren, you know, the 90 minutes thing that I own Lauren for sure it's just gonna be like nullified uh if we ever get the head of state i might owe ryan and james 90 minutes but uh i thought that that whole thing was nullified until i realized like oh this is just like a shonen anime but in like 90 minutes i can enjoy this <laughs> and then i immediately started enjoying the movie because it, it had every like all the classic tropes where it's just like you know, dumb, lovable uh, protagonist, a bunch of ridiculousness in the background, talking about, like, essentially power levels and stuff like that. And then this, like, he had, was, like, attractive, but didn't realize that he was attractive to, like, the opposite sex. And, uh, oh, man, it had all of those Shonen tropes that I love. I ended up enjoying it in the end. See, there you go. Like, you, you got to trust us. Like, we're, we're not trying to lead you astray. Usually. How far into the movie were you before you realized that you actually truly loved it? Uh, I was a good 50 minutes to an hour. <laughs> and then it dawned on me. <laughs> See, I, I loved this movie as a child. And then, like, this rewatch was actually... Like, I, I kept on waiting for all the stuff that I remembered. And what happened was, was that I thought so many things that were, like, cool happened back to back. In reality, every single one of them was punctuated by, like, a seven-minute music number that I completely suppressed the memory of. And I forgot that those happened all together. And as Lauren alluded to, the title of the movie is Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. So he was damn sure that he was going to get as much music in here, including what felt like a knockoff Cindy Lauper. Right? There was a lot going on in, in this movie. But it was, a, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. There were things that I didn't pick up on when I was a kid, like how, like, as a kid, I picked up on uh, Taimaka, Bruce Leroy, literally cosplaying Bruce Lee throughout the movie in every single outfit. I don't think he wore an outfit that wasn't worn by Bruce Lee the whole movie. But I didn't catch that Shonuff was literally dressed like if you asked someone to, to, to costume Oda Nobunaga from Japan as a shogun uh, without knowing anything about Japan <laughs> other than like it has the right sun flag. Um, and then like he even had like a Japanese flag on his sunglasses. Like it was like all the way there and i didn't i appreciate that stuff now i think a lot more than a lot more than i did earlier um so yeah i i really enjoyed the rewatch the music i i eventually ended up trying to just like zone out for because there's some of it i felt like it was supposed to be intentionally bad 
and that's a weird situation to be in in a movie that's like full of music is to have like multiple segments uh, of uh, multiple segments highlighting music that's supposed to sound bad, but otherwise, like I, I enjoy most of the play. For the musical pedigree of this movie, it is amazing how much of it is like. Maybe these this was the dregs that they were like not quite sure what they wanted to do with in Motown. With that said, when Rhythm of the Night started playing, I had to keep myself from dancing in my living room because my wife would have made fun of me if I had. Uh, and I absolutely went to sleep and woke up singing The Glow. Um, and that's probably going to just be in my head now for the rest of my life. Yeah, um, you'll never get it out. There's no. never a reason not to dance. No matter if they, no matter if yeah. they shame you or not. I mean, if Devarge comes on, you're gonna sing and dance along, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, and also, I, I I can confirm that the glow is a fantastic like pump up a uh, workout song. I used to have it all the things that would make <laughs> me um, laugh and try to go faster to finish up. Yeah, uh, those things were, uh, and also like I forgot about just how lampshaded like the the title songs show up in like the perfect places. It's all just really. It's exactly what you think would be the cheesiest option at every point, and that makes it great. Uh, you just remind me of a funny high school story. <laughs> so I was on the football team in high school, and one of our team captains, he would he had a techno mix of the Barbie Girl song, <laughs> and that he would play to help uh, get himself through workouts, and like. Like, like sometimes he would, we had a speaker system in our uh, in our uh, weight room and sometimes he would connect his iPod and then all of a sudden the song would go like cut on. And then it's just a room full of like it's got to be 15 to like 20 guys. I went to a small high school, 15 to 20 guys. All of them stop except for one who just starts dancing and then jumps onto like whatever workout he's doing and uh, just reps it out like it's nothing like it's nothing to him. Come on, Barbie, let's go party! Like it was funny every time. This isn't the first time I've seen this movie, but it's it's been a long time since I've seen it. I saw it first in college in my undergrad. I had never heard of it before, which is surprising because I love kung fu movies. Uh, and I saw it for the first time then. And I was like, that movie was crazy and ridiculous. And this is the first time I really watched it and like thought about what was happening. And boy, does that concept double down even more when you actually pay attention to everything that's happening. But ultimately, I fall on the side of I love this movie, even though it is absolutely 150% ridiculous at every turn. Uh, it's just, it encapsulates so much about what makes martial arts movies great and also, like, what makes the love of martial arts movies by black people so perfect like it's just everything mixed in in just like the perfect soup way and i wish that this movie got like way more respect than it actually does i can agree with that it's definitely achieved like a level of cult status and you've got you know folks like buster rhymes dressing like show enough in music videos and like every once in a while you hear nods to it but people tend to ignore it i mean i, I will say that like I said, I love this movie. I am probably the only person here who watches this movie at least once a year, and I have no shame in that. 
None at all. <laughs> um, you like what you like. I have. I, I love mean, what I love. Has, has movies like that. I mean, for me, it was um, for the longest time the Golden Child. I used to watch that like every year, and I cannot defend it. Um, unlike uh, Laugh Dragon, I think like Golden Child was like really bad, but like I still love it. Um, Laugh Dragon is actually good. You don't have to be ashamed about like watching that, watching this every like every year. This would be fun. It's the most wholesome black exploitation film ever made. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> like I hesitate to even call it a black exploitation. It technically checks off a lot of those boxes, but it's so wholesome and so sweet. And it was like one of the you know movies I watched as a small child, and that's why it's always kind of stuck with me as just being over the top ridiculous. And because Shown Up is the greatest movie villain in the world that I want to root for every time because he's so over the top. But the things that do stick out at me most, like this. Um, similar to what James was saying, is one, the just sheer 80s-ness of this whole movie, which any movie made in the 80s, you know is made in the 80s because there's just something inherently 80s-ish about the hairstyles and the clothing that the people are wearing. It's obviously an 80s movie, and you can always tell that. This definitely doubles down that, but it's an 80s black movie, uh, which makes it even better somehow. It just feels so authentically like black Harlem in so many ways that I love it. But it's also the the kung fu-ness, like how much black folks love like kung fu movies, how much we love all sorts of things from other Asian cultures, just kind of wrapped up in this movie in a way that is just just really sweet. <laughs> like it's, it's basically two cultures really trying to come together as one culture where everyone loves Bruce Lee and hence Bruce Lee Roy. Also the greatest character name. The, the even better part about that was like there was a there, there's a segment in the movie when uh, when Bruce Lee Roy goes to look for um, uh, look look for the master his uh, former master tells him to find it's like well you need to go find your next master and he runs up on uh, these three Asian men and they are all speaking in like AV like they're speaking in black vernacular um, and it is really funny because Lee Roy spent the whole movie. Um, being basically a man out of culture he is so like he is so bruce lee that he is like like walking as like a walking extra through a film set of everywhere else um and it's fantastic um and then he runs upon uh the group of people where he's looking for you know the stereotypical asian master to give him get him to the next level and i love that it's only referred to as the next level the final level <laughs> and um and and having them um speaking essentially jive was like a wonderful deconstruction i like there, there's there's a ton of that stuff in the movie but i thought it was just like a really good uh perfect encapsulation of like hey all of our cultures really appreciate each other in all these different ways and this is how it ends up coming out sometimes i also appreciate that like a lot of like so a lot of expectations focus on stereotypes of black people and in this there's a little bit of that but there's so much deconstruction of that like to what you're saying like Bruce, Bruce Lee Roy is not the typical like black exploitation main character. He's not a pimp. He's like the furthest thing possible from a pimp. He is very quiet. He's sweet. He's well mannered. He's completely not paid attention to anything that's happening. Um, like Andre said at the beginning, he has no idea he's a hottie. Like he doesn't even know what to do when uh, you know the girl starts coming on to him. No idea what to do with that at all. I don't believe you can his, like that and not know. Like that's ridiculous to me. It's the, like it's especially <laughs> he doesn't the know. Of like, he, he's a shonen anime protagonist. I'm telling you, he has no idea. He's like, never thought anybody, about it. Like he's just like, any... walking over people in the movie theater. Like, excuse me, excuse me, pardon me. This guy's trying to kill me. Excuse me. I'm taking the side door. Can I have some popcorn? <laughs> um, 
And like <laughs> that was more believable to me than like not knowing that he was hot. Like, I'm sorry, that that's just ridiculous. Hey, at least he didn't take any glasses off to become hot in the movie, okay? So it's still not as bad as it could have been. <laughs> True. But he's still very much not stereotypical. And, like, his parents also don't care that he's not stereotypical, right? Like, his brother gives him a lot of, like, crap for being weird, basically. But his parents are super supportive of him. His dad runs a pizza shop. And so they're all just basically, like, breaking stereotypes as much as they can. And then, like, you have all the Asian characters that are doing the same thing. You've got Johnny, who can't fight, right. but uses the, like, perception of him as, a, as an Asian person to, like, make people think he can um, to get out of fighting. And then you've got, you know, the three guys that work at the, at the uh, fortune cookie place that are super drive, dancing around to the music. Like, the whole thing is just full of people not at all caring about what they're supposed to be like and just enjoying what they love. And being unapologetic about it, right? But still in a really oddly respectful way. I also love that his family is just like a normal family. Like, I think that helps like solidify how weird he and Shonuffin and his gang are in this world. And they're just like all these background characters are just like normal little people just living their regular old lives while this like basically kung fu adventure is just happening around them it's just so crazy so like ryan mentioned the theater scene at the beginning which is one of my favorite scenes and i also don't know if you guys realize it's actually based on a real scene like it's actually what prompted the development of this film is that the screenwriter was at a theater like that in new york uh in the early 80s and was watching a bruce uh lead screening for enter the dragon and you know he was like, it was exactly like that. There were people dancing, there were people fighting in it. Everyone was excited and shouting. It's like all these different ethnicities, like coming together, enjoying Bruce Lee. And like, all of a sudden, he was like, I need to make this into a movie, basically. And so he did, and he created the character of Bruce Lee, or Bruce, Bruce Leroy, um, with his girlfriend after the film. And ended up putting into the movie like this exact scene of what he saw that night. So like all those different kinds of people enjoying the movie, like just having fun. It's a crazy experience. I will say it's a lot like seeing a black film in a lot of black theaters. <laughs> a any kind of film, but like very much apparently true to the reality that he saw in our at that time. Um, which is one of the things I love about that. It just feels kind of like authentically chaotic. Yeah, it also reminded me of uh, comic book movies when those open. And how, like, you get this crazy mania, people are cosplaying during the movie, like, you get all types of shenanigans where, like, sometimes, like, if the trailer looked really bad, people will be cheering, like, in their seat, like, before the film, going, please don't suck, please don't suck. And then, like, during the movie, everyone goes absolutely nuts when stuff happens. Yeah, it's definitely something that hasn't gone from our movie culture in america and i absolutely love it ah covid one of these days we will actually be able to see a movie in a theater again without a mask <laughs> without a mask uh i don't know if it's true or not but the story i've always heard um about the theaters like that um in the like i guess 70s is that like martial arts movies in america got popular because of showings like that like in new york where like they were cheap movies that nobody would really want to show in like a normal theater people would go because it didn't cost hardly anything you could take your whole family and like crowds just went nuts and like i've always heard that that's what spawned 
the popularity of like martial arts movies in America, but I don't know for sure if that's true. Maybe you all who know a little bit more about movie history um, can give some credence to that. Good question. I actually don't know that I've heard that. I've heard that something about black exploitation films. That's actually how they became popular was because people came in droves to see them and had that kind of theater experience. And it eventually became mainstream enough that they created more mainstream black exploitation films. Um, but that's pretty awesome if that's true about about Kung Fu movies, too. It's also not uncommon for a lot of films in movie history. Because that's, like, I mean, the modern theater was born out of, what, the Nickelodeon, if I'm not mistaken. But that was what movies were, were just these cheap, super cheap things that people could just go to. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. And um, I, I think that it's also, like, we talked, we alluded to before about, like, how this kind of echoed in Black culture for... Um, for a long time. And um, I know that it was at like 1997, 1998, um, uh, Buster Rhymes had the dangerous video where he literally just like shot for shot does the warehouse fight. But it but it's very much the thing of, I didn't realize that it was seen as uncommon that like, I just took it as, took it for granted that black folks love Kung Fu until I moved away from Detroit and people were just like, what do you mean? I'm like, I, I don't know, like everybody, you just you just watch kung fu movies. Everybody had their favorite kung fu movie. We listened to Wu Tang. Don't you guys ever listen to the lyrics of Wu Tang? All the stuff about Wu Tang is just nerds talking about comic books and kung fu, and that very much gave me um, a good sense of place as a young nerd of knowing like, yes, there's lots of cool stuff that's outside of your horizons that you can also claim as your own, and having like the black remix of those things is extra fun. In Detroit, there's like a Chinese corned beef place. Uh, like Asian corned beef is a it is like an old Detroit staple, um, and I think that's like a pretty perfect example of like yeah, like we 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 can imprint on a whole lot of different things. I need you to explain that to me further. I need you to fully describe what Asian corned beef looks like and tastes like. Oh boy, um, so I think that there's. I don't know if they're if they're still all open, but there's at least three versions of them. Basically, imagine an egg roll plus corned beef. It is a thing that's been around for a long time. It's an interracial family. Um, they've been doing that for a long time. And yeah, corned beef egg rolls. Um, that's a thing that I've never seen anyplace else. They, they, they do all sorts of wacky fusion stuff. I think there's also like... Uh, a Texas toast Reuben and all sorts of like weird things going on there. But, um, but it very much is the like, right. If you have like um, Asian inspired stuff in a black location, eventually it starts taking on the character of the city. So I, so I, again, it's one of those things where like, again, once I, one, once I moved out of Detroit and I realized how much stuff just wasn't normal things because you grew up with them and you go, Oh, okay. No, that was really different. This, like that, that was my kind of experience so hopefully at some point um they'll survive covid um and uh, for those of you who eat beef you can go try the um the the, the corned beef egg roll um in all of its majesty an undercover detroit classic i would absolutely give that a shot mm-hmm. i will say i feel like that like a lot gets made of like black asian dynamics in the u.s and most of it's negative right the ways in which like those kinds of populations don't get along and everyone sort of highlights that and I'm like rewatching this film again for like the third time this year. Uh, I really need black and Asian peoples to get along more because we produce like amazing things. Tennis players, golfers, we mastered fried chicken, you know, individually. We like our spice. We like our rap. We can dance. We age at approximately the same rate. 
I just feel like there's a lot here for us to be obviously very close over, uh, which is also why I love this movie so much. It kind of like highlights more of that in the ways that everyone gets along. It's an oddly multicultural view of America that wasn't really the way that America was at that time, but it was nice to pretend it was. Yeah, and, and if you think about it, even just like the the characters that you're looking at, um, Vanity, um, who I don't think we've talked about much, um, uh, Laura Charles, the the uh, the the heroine of this movie, um, who is continually perpetually in distress. Uh, first of all, has <laughs> the most perfect '80s look, but is more or less just like doing her thing, you know, living her life. But all the harm comes to her because she won't put like a bad music video on her show um <laughs> like the kinds of problems people are dealing with in this are not like super deep shona doesn't actually care about anything other than like getting to fight somebody good and he like he does he turns down the money all of his everybody he beats up in this movie and every place he goes in it's just because he recognizes like i just want a good fight i'm the show good he's boss level yeah yeah like you know like the rest of these these folks are wearing like camo and like um, military surplus gear because that's all we could find you know there's only like six of us in this gang and we run all of Harlem uh, you know he needed some competition like every, everybody's motivations are just like really quaint in a way that's like kind of heartwarming because there's no like battle over like the fate of New York there's no like we have to protect this thing and save all these people you know for the majority of the movie it's just like hey he, he, like Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Leroy needs directions. <laughs> it's his primary motivation. Uh, is he needs directions and to like believe in himself. And like, if you would have told me, like, if you write all that down on paper, it does not make an entertaining movie. And I, and I truly think it's a matter of alchemy that they managed to make this as good as it was. Yeah, related to that and the character motivation, it, it, it that brings up the only thing that I don't like about this movie, really. And and it's not enough to make me not like the movie, but the Arcadian, like, everything doing with Eddie Arcadian, I could just not have in this movie. Like, all of the stuff with the the singer and the piranha thing and, like, his weird gang. I really wish they had just leaned harder into Shonuff because, like, really what I wanted to see is just way more Shonuff. So, like, you take all that stuff out and you're just like, and now we're going to show Shonuff doing more stuff. And I'd be like, this is the perfect movie. But uh, that's my only complaint about this movie is I just, I wish that they had focused even more on just regular people like doing their thing and hadn't brought in this like maybe gangster kind of character. Because um, it just didn't, I don't think, mesh well with everything else they had. But how is he going to get the girl if there are no gangsters there to save her from? Well, he's, I mean, he's <laughs> could save her from Show Enough. Show Enough would have absolutely taken her hostage to get a good fight. But I mean, still, it was the inciting, well, it was not the inciting incident, but it was how they met, too. So it was just like, oh, I saved you from these random gangster guys. Now, you know, this relationship is a thing that we're building towards throughout the movie. So a lot of ways it felt like just arbitrary, which I totally understand what you're saying in that regard but but he's like i could just go with it you know turn the brain off for a little bit just like okay this is a thing that we have going on let's do it i mean i do think that eddie definitely is the only person that has any real motivations even if they're kind of silly right to become rich and famous through his girlfriend 
And I think the only purpose that he serves is introducing us to his girlfriend, who is actually one of my favorite things about this movie, the Cindy Lauper <laughs> wannabe with a heart of gold and all this gook in her hair. And and rewatching it this week, I was like, you know, honestly, her uh, Dirty Book song probably would have been a huge hit in the 80s. Like, let's be honest, it would have been a huge <laughs> hit in the 80s. I'm, I'm fairly sure that Barry Gordy tried to turn her into his Cindy Lauper, and she didn't want to. Oh, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I could see that. Which is, yeah, it's 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 kind of actually, you know, like a one like a sad misconnection. And like, I I know that um, like I want I don't know whether like how many movies Vanity made before this. Although like her movie career was a lot of just Purple Rain, I think was the big one. Right. Um, but like this was Timex's first movie, and. That shows in a bunch of ways, but it's super endearing. Like, yeah, like everything kind of came together in in, in that way. I, I I really just enjoyed that, like like being able like, because the naivete was so important to him as a character that him being you know like relatively new as an actor um, actually made it really easy for it to come through. Yeah, they wanted to originally uh, hire Billy Blanks for that role. Uh, and he was closer to what the screenwriter had envisioned when he, like, imagined, you know, who Leroy was to begin with. And it's honestly just weird for me to think about Billy Blanks in that role, because I do think it's the pure, innocent wholesomeness of Tymok makes that, like, character more iconic and really fits in. And counterbalances the super cheesy evilness of Shonuff and of Eddie Arcadian, right? Like, they're so over-the-top villainous, and he's so over-the-top innocent. You kind of had to have to have both of those together. Then you have Laura Charles, who's just weirdly cynical and like streetwise, but also weirdly vapid. Um, it just makes her like the perfect 80s heroine, I guess. And then you have his little brother, who is just like an over the top wannabe streetwise kid, even though we all know that his parents run a pizza parlor and there's really nothing really that street about him. So they all kind of fit well together. But I think I think it would be weird to see someone else in that role. I was looking through like who all auditioned for this because that's always like a fun recast game. Um, and I don't know whether all these are true, but I know IMDb was saying that like Wesley Snipes uh, auditioned and lobbied to try to be Leroy, that um, Denzel Washington auditioned for both Leroy and Shonuff. And I'm so glad that that didn't happen actually, <laughs> um, because I could, I'm just trying to imagine like the Shonuff soliloquy. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, um, you know, like <laughs> showing up, just looking at the camera, giving like the serious speech about how like all they have left is the two of them in this fight. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> um, I'm very glad that that actually didn't happen. Did you all catch like the uh, cameo though? That was a very young William H Macy in the studio. I did, and it was weird. <laughs> oh yeah, which I do think elevates this film a little higher. It can't be that bad. William H Macy was in it. <laughs> I honestly thought he was going to be in more of the movie when he showed up, and then he just wasn't. I know. It just became a thing that you expect to see him come back again, and he never comes back again. His character just sort of disappears. He has one purpose, to let you know that Eddie Arcadian is a serious dude, in case you weren't sure by the piranha tank. Uh, <laughs> and then he disappears. And that just made me want to watch Mystery Men, seeing him in that movie. I just immediately was just <laughs> thinking about that. It's like, oh. Such a fun movie, Mystery Man. One of the things that I 
really gets focused on in this kind of movie is like the action sequences. And we actually haven't talked about that at all. Like we've talked about how much we love Kung Fu as individuals and as uh, general people. But I want to talk a bit about the action sequences here because the movie starts off with just a close up shot of, you know, of Bruce Leroy practicing basically. Right. And throughout the film, there are these little moments in, you know, interspersed between the musical vignettes, which I agree are mostly terrible and also very eighties. But there's all these little like fight scenes where you get to see him doing something or not doing something. Any particular takeaways as to like the effect, the effects of those fight scenes throughout this film? Does it feel like a real Kung Fu film? Right. I, I mean, I like them. I will say that for a Kung Fu film, there aren't that many of them, um, which is particularly interesting. Like, I mean, there's the opening, the he fights the gang members a couple of times. Um, and then there's really like the set piece at the end of the movie, which I think is maybe a separate conversation. Um, but yeah, it is a little, a little bit surprising to me that there weren't more opportunities for Bruce Leroy to just beat dudes up. Yeah, yeah I was okay with that. I'll let Ryan go ahead, but yeah, I was okay with that. There, there are a lot of breaks between the action sequences, which makes them feel like they're not uh, as substantive. One area that I thought that the fight sequences did really well in was I enjoyed the Foley work. Uh, the sound effects were better than I was expecting for the movie. Because I know that a lot of one of the things that I associate with black exploitation is sometimes wildly out of place uh, sound effects uh, for things. And this wasn't the case. It was like, all right, these are like pretty well done um, and kind of dialed in. Like Bruce, Bruce Lee utterings are pretty pitch perfect and uh, work pretty well. He does a lot of like there, there are both some like emulation bits there, and I know that he actually practiced with a uh, Jeet Kune Do like during the filming of this, um, and that kind of came through. That like there were parts of it where I, I was literally thinking in my head like, if this was a Bruce a Bruce Lee movie, this is what would happen next, and then it did. You know, like he he chases everybody back into their car, and I was like, if it, if it was Bruce Lee, he you know. Like he cried, kicked the, the he kung fu kicked the door closed, and he did, and all of those things just you know did the nice thing in my brain where I was just like, oh yes, this is oddly satisfying. I know what to kind of expect from some of these set pieces. One of the things that I thought was not as great as I wish it would be was the number of random people who actually know kung fu around. There were a few, but. One of the things that I enjoy about those movies is that, like pretty much anybody can can get it. Anybody is somebody who might just come at you with a spin kick, whether they're a doorman or like somebody working at the pharmacy. All of them are viable fighters until you know whether they are or not, and that really didn't come through uh, in in the movie too much. I really wanted a lot more random people with random weapons to show up and get dispatched, but that's just my own personal preference. When I was watching this, I was thinking about how. Uh the difference between modern action and now or sorry the difference between modern action and the 80s where like you actually get to see the whole movement actually go through and uh like you don't really see that nowadays except for maybe like john wick and even still john wick has its moments where it's just cut to oblivion um but there are few uh but like it also reminded me of why that's the case in a few moments because you could tell like oh this person doesn't really do martial arts like you know you see the whole movement and you can see like oh yeah like this person that actually does martial arts uh kind of 
took a bit of a dive here just to make sure that that person was safe or like, uh, okay, no, that's a stunt, man. That person's, uh, and that person's actually going with like some decent pace so that they can make it at least look good. And so that was the, that was the one thing I didn't like was just kind of seeing that inconsistency with the action. But like, again, I could suspend it for this, for this entire movie and still enjoy myself. The thing that I noticed, though, about the action, uh, and Lauren was talking about how wholesome the movie was, was how little gore there was. Because mm-hmm. typically you would expect to see, you know, we're talking about this as a, a black exploitation film. And typically you think in gore and all this random nudity and all this stuff when this was just like one scene where dudes had bleeding arms. And that was it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like no breaking of bones. Yeah, it's like no breaking of bones or anything, which is which is great. (laughs) Which is great. That's not a complaint. Shana broke that guy's leg and then he bit it inexplicably. But it's still so much. (laughs) But it wasn't like but it wasn't like an egregious like, oh my god, his let you know, his foot's turned the wrong way and stuff like that. It's just like No, I disagree. I think you gotta rewatch that scene. I think that like (laughs) <laughs> he, he was just like wrangling it around to the point where it obviously could not be attached to a person anymore. And then he just bites yeah. it for no reason. Yeah. But that's at the beginning to establish how terrible he is. And from then on, he's not nearly as bad. Right. It's like the equivalent of kicking a puppy early on in a, in a film to show how someone's a truly bad person. And then they put on their black hat and they wander away and you never have to do any other acts of violence. I, I mean, because if we think about it, like Shonoff and his gang really didn't do anything to anybody until... Bruce Leroy decided to try to ignore them. They were essentially just cosplayers that like everybody had a big respect for. We don't see them doing anything or controlling any territory or shaking down any businesses. And everybody jumps down there to fight him. But as they get like, you know, show enough as a king of consent, like um, he didn't, you know, let let non-combatants get hurt too often. He didn't stop his men from uh, hitting Bruce's uh, Bruce Leroy's fa- uh, uh, father, mother in the pizza place. It's kind of crazy that like it was so clean, and and now as you, now as you mentioned it, um, there's one scene where with uh, with Eddie where uh, Leroy puts him face down in the water tank, but but he obviously doesn't know that there's piranhas in it, which was established in the scene earlier, and I did have that moment of like, was there a horrible piranha death that I forgot about in this movie? But he literally is like in the water long enough for like the world's shortest baptism and then like right back out and everybody else in the room is like super uh like super relieved (laughs) and to be fair i think eddie eddie has like a reason to actually like be angry after that i think at that point because yeah that that was probably much more scary than uh than, than mr green understood at the time but but yeah even that thing was subverted and like just kind of lampshaded that was yeah thinking about it, it was really interesting how just how clean they're able to make it yeah, going back to the scene with Shonuff at the theater and, like, fighting anybody who would be willing to challenge him, one thing I just thought was, or have always thought is really interesting about this movie is that they don't give you any setup to Shonuff and uh, Leroy's relationship. It's just like, Shonuff is in the theater, declares himself the king, is already pissed at Bruce Leroy. Like, you don't need to know anything more. They don't attempt to be like, give you any backstory of any characters. They're just like, yeah, these two like martial arts dudes 
just know each other and um show enough already hates the other one what what else do you need to know that's an excellent point like i do kind of appreciate that they start off that way and i would love to know more of the backstory like did they train together and like this is like a i don't know a weird version of kung fu panda where like you know the master that <laughs> you're always training with dumps the other one because he's just not a good person or what happens exactly or is it just that like in every kind of neighborhood like this, everyone knows everybody else. And so Leroy obviously has a reputation for being, you know, Bruce Leroy. And that's a threat to, you know, the Shogun's ascendancy, basically. He needs everyone to know that he is the Shogun of Harlem and thus the master. Can't have another guy walking around being Bruce Leroy. That was like explicitly uh, stated in that scene, though, I thought. Like in the movie theaters, he mentioned him like, Oh, yeah, you have all these legends about you doing all this crazy stuff. I can't have that. We got to fight. <laughs> that was basically it. It was just like, okay. <laughs> it's a perfect setup. What more do you want? It doesn't need to be this long, <laughs> like drawn out, you know, feud over decades or anything like that. Just, you know, I'm in charge. You're a threat. Oh, my God. That Let's was just fight. another moment that reinforced the fact that it's a shonen anime. You're strong. I'm going to fight you. <laughs> okay <laughs> like everything everything doesn't need to be like a, a you know a horrible crusade of you know of um you know it, it, it doesn't have to be an Inigo Montoya you know revenge driven plot you just be like hey that guy sucks this really a guy who sucks and I'm going to show you all how much he sucks me and my five closest friends are going to are going to make him prove that I'm better than him no yeah there, there's there, there's so much about this movie that I think it's it's fun. It's kind of fun examining in this way because my brain keeps trying to intersperse. Like, but wait, but there was something else here, and I was like, no, there wasn't. There wasn't anything deeper. There was nothing else for you to analyze. There, it's exactly as it looks. I like that you're really hoping to trick yourself to think this is honestly a really deep, profound story of some sort. It's not. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and though and say that we should we should talk about things that are considered spoilers. So this is a, a moment for all listeners. If you haven't seen this film yet, I, I highly recommend it. You can find it on Amazon Prime right now. If you do not want it spoiled for you, now is the time to stop. If you're okay with spoilers or you've seen it, then you can continue on from here. But as we start, as we continue talking about like their interactions, let's talk about like the escalation. You know, the last 30 minutes of the film where everything quickly escalates. <laughs> basically, out into this like ridiculous plot that we have going forward and Bruce Lee Roy is now trying to start to finish all of his like remaining threads right so he's got his his um crusade to find against himself to become you know the 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 last dragon the master reach the final level he's got the love interest that you know he's pursuing he's got the battle against his neighborhood rival and ultimate en enemy show enough and then he's got this like random side battle with this random mobster guy that just hates him because he's protecting the girl that won't play the music video basically which when you say all that out loud does sound really ridiculous much more convincing <laughs> in the film uh and it all leads to like this weird battle royale basically where eddie goes around and recruits all these other bad guys which is one of my favorite scenes because it's so stupid <laughs> It's just so stupid. The kind of like audition that he's doing for guys that are wearing chains and like just bark instead of talking. <laughs> and it's just such a cartoonish kind of like, it's like, a, it's like something out of a Tim Burton Batman film. 
right? Like one of the early ones from the late 80s, early 90s, where you're like, where did you find these people? One of them brings a newspaper clipping of him like having murdered a co-ed. And that's his audition. What is that? Like, I thought you just would like to see my evil CV. I brought a cover letter. No, like, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, it's, it's so, it, this is one of the, that's one of the parts that feels like it's actually so bad it's good because at this point, you know, if you've been filming this for like 40 days, you kind of know, uh, <laughs> what you have on your hands. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, I feel like you just eventually go like, well, how is Eddie, the guy who runs the music club thing, going to have this m- enough thugs who were all willing to fight without guns? And so, like, that, that sequence was absolutely perfect. Uh, a thing that, and so what happens, you know, they have the fight. Bruce Leroy is fighting on his own. He takes, takes out a lot of the gang himself. But, you know, he gets hemmed up. And then his students from his, uh, from his dojo all run in to save him. And something I didn't notice until this most recent rewatch is that you can hear them coming a good like 15 to 20 seconds before they show up because they're just screaming and running in real time through the set. Um, and that like, and the idea that like all of these people who are decide- there to fight one person, nobody looks around for the 20 small and medium sized children um, that are all <laughs> running towards you screaming battle cries is absolutely hilarious. And they would have all been stopped if somebody would have just like closed one door. And so, so I think it was all like, it, it was just all perfect. It was all perfectly, perfectly hilariously off-putting and how and and how horribly bad it was it was so bad it was good and i laughed the entire way through the scene a lot of this movie would not have happened if there had just been security at the studio like just one security guard at the studio with a gun would have stopped a lot of nonsense i did not notice that you could hear them beforehand and now i kind of want to go back and rewatch that scene because that's hilarious I went back to it because I thought that like I was I thought I literally thought that someone started playing in another tab. <laughs> I was just like, oh, like did, did did like a YouTube video restart? Oh no, nope, that's just oh here they are. There was also like um, a really standout martial arts performance from the young kid who was who was uh was Ernie Reyes Jr. Uh, as Ty. Um, just and I think he was actually fighting his father in that scene. Uh, Ernie Reyes Sr. Um, and that's got to be a cool thing is like if you and your kid study martial arts and stuff and getting to like fight each other in a feature film i think it just sort of goes to the wholesomeness of this whole thing though you've got all these weird bad guys in chains and they get defeated by a scrappy band of kids right um while their mentor goes off in search of the you know boss level guys which turn out to be Shonuff and eddie arcadian for some reason so they're like lurking in the shadows watching all this in a weird sadistic like boxing match style thing and of course, his girlfriend gets caught up in it, you know, taken and kidnapped and caught up in chains. And also his little brother, for no real reason whatsoever, that to just have his little brother witness the final moment and actually develop respect for him. But the fight with Shonuff is just kind of amazing because it's the only time where Bruce Lee really isn't on top of his game when it comes to martial mm-hmm. arts. It's, he flounders. He has a huge problem actually doing it. It's the only real time he experiences a problem. And the like a real problem that he can't quite master the entire film. About two minutes long, but it's there. He suddenly becomes unsure about himself. Just long enough to learn a lesson and get dunked underwater a few times. There's a great callback in that fight to um so early in the movie when um he, he saves uh Laura Charles' love interest from uh the people trying to kidnap her into a car. I think that was actually the, the that was the first kidnapping. She was she got kidnapped, I think, four times total. Four times in like yeah, she has a punch card. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lot. You know, she eats free next time. You know, she he he hails a cab for her, and then he literally does the Batman vanishing trick, where you know he hails a cab for her. She talks to the cabbie. They look back for where he is, and he's gone. It's absolutely hilarious. And it actually gets called back during the Shona fight in the end. Leroy gets the drop on Shona by riding on a chain and jump kicking him through a door, which was an amazing, badass moment. And sure enough, literally does one of those video game death animations on the ground where he like rise and then like goes still. And Leroy turns around, it's like, oh man, you know, I have, I'm bleeding from exactly three cuts. I, I need to take it easy. And he turns around and goes to go back to his brother and just hear a booming Leroy that comes out of, uh, comes from like every direction at once and he turns back around and the body's gone and it's just like i can disappear too that's how high my martial arts is is that i have the ability to vanish even though i just got my ass kicked it was so good <laughs> <laughs> when you use when you use all of your items on stage one of the boss not knowing that there's a stage two <laughs> <laughs> especially great because it's not like they're in a room where there is an escape it's just like a closet area basically there's no place to go but he's gone. And then he comes back and is... Just imagine him sitting there going like, like, isn't it that annoying when I do that? That's <laughs> right. Like, uh, where'd he go? What happened? And then Shonuff comes back at him and his hands start glowing red, you know, and you realize mm-hmm. that he's reached his upper level and he starts, you know, going after Bruce Wayne. It's so hilarious to just see like these rotoscoped hands glowing bright red and all the sparks flying from every time they hit each other. The, the, this just solidifies my headcanon that Shonuff was like that master's failed student because like he knows all the same tricks and he has like an unrefined version of the glow and it's just like you know what actually this is making a lot more sense. This is Kung Fu Panda uh-huh. This is Kung Fu Panda 20 years <laughs> earlier. Yeah I, I think that that's actually like I, I, I now ascribe to that. It's now canon as far as this podcast is concerned. And you know what? I, I actually remembered the glow effects being worse than than they were. It, it actually didn't look as bad as I thought it would. Ironically enough, I actually felt like uh, like Leroy didn't glow enough, if that makes sense. Uh, a good chunk of that fight, he was not glowing nearly at the level I expected him to glow. And uh, but showing us red glow, maybe it was just easier to to get that to get that to show up. But the sparks on on hitting the little lightning streaks and everything else was just it was just very anime i loved it it was like they they, i feel like they sold the moves a little more you know everybody leaned into it a little bit more and it didn't last a super long time but it was really great i would say it also brought the moment of show enough asking who is the master and dunking him in that water and having the the early ripple effect um flashbacks each time as leroy figures out that he's the master it was super cheesy it was perfect everything you could want from uh, an incredibly straightforward no pun- no punches pulled story so i was gonna say like the whole part where like showing up is dunking in the water and he's having his flashbacks where suddenly he's like who is the master because he's been asked this question now finally he's been asking the question for a while and you know he's suddenly like the master people keep using the word master when i'm around maybe i'm the master <laughs> the fact that he goes through this whole thing knowing exactly what the viewer already has known for a while um it's at least so at least once you figured out the whole issue with the fortune cookie company you were like you you pretty much knew if you weren't sure by then it was obviously clear at that point that leroy green is in fact the master um but he didn't know this so watching him discover that 
And then when he comes back out of the water that last time, his face is mostly clean of blood for one thing. So he's like renewed. He feel he looks fresher, more in control, and he's got a facial expression and a smile that's a lot more sinister than he ever actually had before. It's like a moment of him losing his innocence to some extent when he realizes that he's actually the master. And then he grabs Shut Up's hand and just sort of like cracks it and holds it like tight. And I do wonder what that experience must have been like uh, for Shonuff to like, sort of be like, what the hell is happening? And for that actor who was not a martial arts trained actor originally, Julius, as I recall, was an actor who trained in martial arts for the movie. So I hope that that, that, that didn't hurt too much. Felt like watching like one of those cheesy Dragon Ball moments where like Goku all of a sudden just levels up in the middle of the fight and his opponent wasn't expecting it. <laughs> I mean, if we want to go like 1000% anime, it is almost exactly Goku transforming into a Super Saiyan for the first time. He has the same like dumb, goofy look to the sinister. Oh, actually, I can like crush you with my thoughts look. He has the same glow. Like, I am convinced that the Dragon Ball creators watched this movie and was like, this is what we have to do. Yeah, the only thing that was missing was, uh, it was missing uh, Bruce Leroy screaming and a random kind of useless character dying. <laughs> do you think this right here is like peak black nerd? What just happened here? Just Absolutely. peak black nerd. Yeah. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it's really the best. <laughs> so we're here to celebrate. Yeah, no, I love your rifling out. He's the master. Uh, he defeats Shonoff, though, and then you think it's all over, but wait, there's more. Because you forgot that Eddie Arcadian is hanging out in the shadows, being weird. <laughs> and <laughs> like every uncreative villain, villain ever just pulls out a gun, which really could have solved this issue way earlier. Way earlier. Yeah, by far. First, uh, way earlier in the movie with the the bad guys, it's like, wait, you're regular gangsters. Like, why don't you just have guns? And then when they introduce a gun towards the end, I'm like, oh, okay, now it's okay for them to have guns. No, they had guns when he uh, went there to rescue. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, to rescue. He just like, yeah, <laughs> that was like the one scene that there was actual blood because he threw like knives or like pins or something in their arm. <laughs> There was, there, was, there was one more, actually. Like, before the Battle Royale, one of the goons tries to actually just shoot him from the, like, like from, from the luxury box that they're sitting in. And Eddie stops him, and it's just like, what are you doing? You're going to screw everything up. And, like, I think at this point, Eddie's cracked and, like, thinks this is all a show. Like, was he filming this? Um, I, have, I, I have no answer as to why he responded in any of the ways that he did. But Eddie finally, you know, pulls out his gun. He says, you know, well, you know... Uh, a gunnel and you know all of this martial arts foolishness and he goes to shoot him and Leroy's head snaps back he goes to the ground everybody looks at him like you know like oh no and everybody you know everybody cries the heroes fall in we went just witnessed the murder and, 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 he, and he comes over and like rolls him over and everybody and like he doesn't actually open his eyes immediately and then he just opens his eyes and opens his mouth and you see the blood in his teeth and it was just like it's it's a perfect Thing that was like foreshadowed in like maybe the fourth line of the movie mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it's like Shonoff's fourth line catches bullets with his teeth he laughs because how ridiculous is that oh yeah like it, it was absolutely perfect although like Eddie had plenty of more bullets and he could have just been a lot more efficient uh with dealing with this and would have movie would have had a lot different ending I need to know though was like 
was the catching a bullet thing something that Leroy had actually done before? Or was this fulfilling a prophecy? Like, I really do need to know if that was a practice move he had done before or it was just a rumor and he made it real. Because for some reason, the answer to this matters to me greatly. Uh, <laughs> it was a very one punch man moment. It's so very specific of a superpower. And <laughs> I just want to know where it came from. Is it part of the glow? Or was it just a thing he managed to do? Yeah, like, I'm on Team Prophecy. It has to be. Like, there's, big, like, in what situation would Timid Leroy, um, up until this point, ever get shot in the face? In the beginning, his master is shooting arrows at him, so I don't want to leave anything on the table here, right? Like, he's literally dodging and catching arrows at the beginning in his training. So maybe they had escalated at some point, and I just missed it. I just wanted to know if this was new or not. Maybe the penultimate level was firearms and we just missed it. <laughs> I am convinced that it, it had to be prophecy and it had to be his first time trying to do it because it's the only thing that like makes sense for the glow master reckless Leroy. I, I just I'm convinced that like the unrealized Leroy would have been unwilling to take that risk. Just like he was unwilling to like do a lot of other stuff and like risk saving his students or whatever when Shonuff was at his dojo. Like, I'm just not convinced he would have tried to do it. But awakened Leroy can do anything. Yeah, exactly. Including go to the club. I don't know, for me, I'm just sitting there thinking, like, during that whole scene, I was just sitting there thinking, it's like, you have two witnesses to murder. Now you have, you know, once he, like, rolled over with the bullet, I was like, Okay, so now you have two witnesses to attempted murder. <laughs> like, this man's going to jail. <laughs> like, I, I didn't even think about, like, prophecy or foreshadow or anything. And so, like, just think about it in this moment. I'm like, okay, I can see prophecy. <laughs> or plot. I prefer just plot. Probably just plot. I do love, though, that when the police come and get Eddie, he starts talking about, officers, I'm so glad you're here. Me and my friend, Mr. Nuff, over here. <laughs> Just hanging out. Then we were accosted. I wrote that down in my notes. I wrote down Mr. Nuff. <laughs> such a great name. Oh, man. First name show. Last name Duff. Apparently, it's just so, like, perfect Eddie, like, crazy Eddie kind of thing where he's like, of course, I'm a white man and the police are going to listen to me even though I'm hanging here um, from a chain. But me and my good friend, Mr. Nuff, were just hanging out in this empty warehouse while these hooligans came and bothered us. Just Thank you for protecting us. See it? There's a shirtless black man, black man over there, Mr. Nuff. Like, like, is Show Nuff his government name? The Shogun of Harlem is actually his nickname, and like, but Show Nuff is like, is exactly who he said who he seems to be. Well, actually, his real name is Clarence, and Clarence's parents have a real oh, good marriage. God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I hope that's true. I hope that's backstory. I'm just going to see if that's how that is for Shodoff. I want Shodoff's parents to be exactly like the Greens, <laughs> except they like they have like, I don't know, a sushi restaurant or something because he is really into Japanese culture in particular. Like he did have the you know, the Japan shades. So like I'd like to think his parents were actually sushi chefs. One other point about Shodoff that I just I think is immaculate and I'm, I love that they spent the money for it is that every single time you see him, he has a different costume on. And it's like all of them are excellent. And, like, they took the time to be like, okay, this scene, you have this costume. And this scene, you have basically the same costume, but it's completely different components. It's just, it's so great. What do you think he did for a living? 
show enough to afford those costumes. He was the shogun. Like, does that come with a salary? Like, a, is it a salaried position being the shogun? I mean, you beat up enough dudes, they'll start paying you to not. Like, cause those those costumes were not cheap. Yeah, like maybe somebody paid tribute. Like, I like I have no clue how a show uh, the the shogun of Harlem is supposed to work. Are there shoguns of the other boroughs? There's so many questions left unanswered. <laughs> is there a shogun of Eight Mile? Let's keep it local. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone want to claim that? It seems like you just walk in and claim that role. So if any of y'all are interested, I guess you could just say, I'm the Shogun of 8 Mile, and we could just call that good. I also just keep getting hung up on, like, how few people he had. <laughs> like, I, I feel like if you're a Shogun, you should have a much... Shoguns have armies. Shonuf had, like, maybe eight people. Yeah, but each one of them was the, had the strength of ten men. Ryan, you don't you don't need an army when you have a small group of elite assassins. Isn't a legion like two people to a thousand two? It, it, it's a small army, technically. <laughs> right. Maybe we should work to wrap in this one up, um, so you can put on your soft white, uh, Bruce Lee, get up and wander into the club. Um, and as you do so, what is your final thoughts on this particular? classic of a film where do you get those flowers from <laughs> good question i want to know how he knew there was a white party going on and why there's always a white party extra black i don't have that many white clothes but so it was yeah. such a black thing to do i'm like of course you're having a white party at the end of this just been kidnapped let's stop and have a white party Ryan, what about you final thoughts my final thoughts are that like it's it's really cool to see some to see like a movie where um, you get to have a character who really digs into a, another culture wholeheartedly, and everybody kind of just goes with it. Like, I, I I, am still grateful to Last Dragon for that and for making it so that um, Black nerds can have these kind of conversations on buses about, like, who would win in a fight, Bruce Leroy versus, like, uh, versus Shaft that have happened since time immemorial. And I think The Last Dragon for giving me, like, a little bit of that joy back. We know that Shaft would have just shot Bruce Leroy and moved on, right? Absolutely. Okay, good. James. <laughs> that, that's a three-minute vignette at best. <laughs> it really is. James, what about you? This movie is great. Talking through it actually makes me like it more because uh, it's just it's so good. And, like, the care and appreciation for Asian culture comes through so much in everything about the making of this movie. And even... You know, I've said before that I started, I saw this movie for the first time in college, but it's like, is everything that was my being in high school, just like the love of martial arts and this whole thing, um, that it's really just like a spot on movie, for, in my opinion, for like a whole generation of people. Andre, do you have something more you wanted to say? Uh, Yeah. So like I was sitting back watching this, I was just like... This is this is just a fun movie. I think we really, especially nowadays, we really undervalued that movie where you can just sit down for like 90 minutes or so and just turn your brain off and just enjoy the content for what it is. And this was just that. It's like, as soon as you like catch on to it, it's just fun to and enjoyable. And I don't know. I wish more movies would just lean into that, but feels like everything is uh more serious these days so it's very rare to get a movie like this that's just fun i agree with all that like for me this is just a really fun wholesome entertaining doesn't take itself too seriously kind of movie and in a 
world, especially these days where there's a lot of conversations around what's appropriation versus appreciation. For me, this fits more into appreciation because everything it's doing, it's doing with love, with acknowledgement, with respect, but still trying to make something its own in a way. Um, and it's very much like everyone gets to kind of play different roles and enjoy each other's cultures in a way that feels a lot better than in the ways that some takes on um, Bruce Lee, for instance, uh, that I've seen in more modern times have done. But I also just really, really love all the ridiculous over-the-top characters who just are people that I wish I kind of knew in real life to make every day a little bit more fun. Like, I kind of need a guy to walk down my street basically singing, like, am I the meanest? Am I the prettiest? Am I the baddest mofo low down around this town? And I need just random people to shout out show enough when he does that, basically. And I feel like my life would be like 25% better. I know what I'm going to do when we get back to the office. Mm-hmm. Cannot wait. <laughs> and it'll be like Barry Gordy's uh, you know, academic innovation brought to you by Barry Gordy. Uh, and I do think that we should think, because I think this is the only film that Barry Gordy actually produced and put his name on. So he obviously knew he had something here and good for him. I think the rest of us do too. So, um, Trav Up, thank you guys for that conversation. This was awesome. This movie is available on Amazon Prime as of the time of this recording. So if you have not seen it, I highly recommend that you go check it out. Purchase it to keep because you will want to keep rewatching it every so often. I do recommend a watching schedule of approximately every seven months. Just enough time to get the glow out of your head and then you can get it back in, right? The next movie we're going to watch is Aquila and the Bee. So again, very different departure from what we just saw. But that'll be the next movie in a couple weeks. So thanks all. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I murder bees. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the trinity. Good people, weed and memories. These are the only things I need.